All right. Today, I am here with Jay Elliott, who is a licensed counselor in, in our community here. So how are you today? Uh, good, thanks. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about how, what drew you into this field, into this profession? <laughs> yeah, they ask me that fairly often. I think the reason I started doing counseling is because I used to be an insurance agent, believe it or not, and so many people would come to me with their problems. I said, well, I like insurance, but I wanted, I felt called to try to help people. And I just felt a natural connection to wanting to, I guess, help people work through pain and suffering and help them kind of get more insight into what made them do what they do. How, how long have you been uh, doing this? Oh, dear. A little bit like there's bachelor's level, then master's level. I got my master's degree. I finished fairly late in life, so I started my master's degree at age 40, and I'm 52 now. I've been doing volunteer counseling, like with inner city homeless in Pottstown. I did that for about a year before I was licensed as part of the volunteer thing, but overall, roughly 10 years now. 10 years. So what was your career change? Um, I did a lot of things. So after my 20s, I worked in fast food for a number of years. Then I worked in as a manager. I started at the bottom like dishwasher, um, washing, wiping tables. And then yeah, I... Bus boys. Yeah, like bus boys. Then I made food. Then I was manager. Then after that, I went to school. And then I went into counseling. Gotcha. Did you have like personal experience in receiving from like therapists and counseling? Yeah, or? I had counseling on and off uh, through my teenage years. I was violently depressed, so I knew I was depressed. But I and I was in and out of counseling with somewhat of a help, but nothing really seemed to get to the root of the problem. So overall, good experience. Um, yeah, I had both. some very good counselors. I had some that were average, but yeah, through the years, I'd say I had some really good, and that's a good side note. Like some people do counseling, some people do life coaching, some people get benefit from mentoring. Basically, according to Carl Rogers, 70% of your people will get better if they have someone to give them encouragement and unconditional positive regard. So, and that's part of our business model is giving people, not really so much trying to fix them, but giving them encouragement, listening to them, giving them their own personal power, hearing their story, and just joining with them so that they can, you know, feel strong to, you know, gain further insight. So skills like like active, actively listening to somebody, making them feel seen and heard, um, are, are these... These are things we're probably oftentimes not good at. And, and so you, or do you find just maybe what are some of the simple things that you learned early on um, where you started making connections with, with people like that? I think the biggest thing is perspective and understanding that I'm not really any different than any of my clients because... Hmm. We all have struggles, we all have challenges, and we all want basically the same things. We want to be listened to, we want to be encouraged, 
We want to be someone to believe in us and someone to give us encouragement. And the more I do counseling, the more I notice that it's not like I'm the expert fixing people, but it's like one broken person reaching out and connecting to another broken person. Hmm. And we kind of heal together. Like the purpose is not to fix me, but the purpose is to recognize the humanity that's present in both of us. And if a person's a Christian, which I am a, a believer, there's even a deeper level of connection and community and communion. It's a little bit more challenging for non-Christians because if they're not connecting to their relationship with God, there's only so far I can help them. But I respect that and I encourage them. And hopefully through relationship, they will see God at work in me and it may draw them to a conversation where they would be more open to uh, looking for their own spirituality. What uh, what kind of methods do you? Or I should say this. What what's what's your primary primary um, um, not audience, but person coming in demographic? Yeah, demographic. What yeah. what are you seeing? Oh goodness, we see everything, everything imaginable. Uh, there's a lot of kids with depression. We get a lot of teens. We get a lot of marriage counseling, drug and alcohol addictions. Um, just any now out of out of all of them, how many of them are coming in at a point where they're like, "Hey, I know something's not quite right, and I want to get it before where this path goes." Or how many of them are just yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's referencing acuity. So that's something I did notice: the acuity or the intensity of the people's problems is way way higher than it was five years ago. For example, for marriage counseling, people usually see us right after they file for a divorce or they found out that their partner's been cheating and they don't really want to work on the marriage or they're not willing to work on the marriage, but their lawyer said they should try marriage counseling to document for their you know, settlement. Mm. But most of the people with the marriage stuff come way later than they should. And I'm not saying they can't be redeemed or saved or repaired, but by the time they see us, the damage is pretty substantial in most cases. As far as the teenagers, yeah, that's also very sad. Like we're having significant number of teenagers with major drug and alcohol overdoses. And that's something we're noticing that we want to warn people is there's a alarming increase in something called fentanyl, which is a very powerful addictive narcotic. And the teenagers are sometimes smoking marijuana, but they don't know it's laced with fentanyl and they're having to be hospitalized. On average, we have two to three teenagers that are inpatient for suicidal attempts. And that's been an average for pretty much every week since the last two years after COVID. How often? About two to three a week are inpatient for suicide attempts. And what age, roughly? Oh, 12 to 17. Mm. And this is kind of like, as, as in my thing, I do all the intakes. So I work at a local counseling agency, and my job is to assess whether they should go inpatient or you know what level of service is correct, if they should be just seen as clinical counseling, which is one to two hours a week, or they should do wraparound, which is called mobile therapy, where a therapist comes out to the house, or if they should be partial hospitalization, or if they need detox, 
So, I mean, I take that part of my job very seriously. I just had a fort. 14 year old uh, she was on fentanyl and I didn't know it and I saw her for weeks and then she overdosed and tried to kill herself two weeks ago and that really shook me up and that's kind of the hardest part of my job is trying to make sure that people don't kill themselves on my watch and it, it never happened yet, but we got way too close. And she lied to me, too, and that was the thing. Like, we don't usually drug test teenagers. You know, we asked the parents to test them at home. And she admitted that she was smoking pot, but I never thought to look for the fentanyl. And she, I asked her, and she said she wasn't on anything harder. But it just it really scares me when... You know, the kids are so addicted at such a young age. It's like it makes it really hard for them to have a functional life. I imagine that's got to be the hardest part of your job, trying to meet somebody where they are but not attach completely and take it home. And, I mean, how how does anyone in your profession, like, well, how do they teach around that? Or Yeah, no, and... I do have a good support system where I work. We we have weekly, we talk, we work as a team approach. So we're doing case management. I do a lot of self-care. You have to take a lot of like self-reflection. And like I said, other than the teenagers that are suicidal, most parts of my job don't get to me. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, we have a good support group. I pray a lot. I'm active in church. Um, a lot of self-reflection but usually when I go home I don't take my job with me and I work very hard to when I'm here I work and I'm present yeah. but when I'm home you know again it, it's for me it's a faith thing yeah. and I just say God you know help me work through this in so that you said within the last five years you've seen a, a shift or an increase in in um, just people's amount of yeah. Just issues arising and what people are able to carry. A ton of trauma, 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 trauma. And this is kind of the paradox for the counselor is the more questions you ask and the better you do your job, the more things you uncover. And like just last week, I had to call Childline, which is for children and youth, because a boy had a, a teenager, had a girlfriend, and the, he was talking about his girlfriend that her biological father was beating her and again we're mandated reporters and you don't want to you know destroy the relationship with your client but also you have to protect people and if they say certain things you have to call it in and it was you know a very hard problem because you you know you want to protect them but you know that if you do this it's going to kill the relationship but the overall acuity like I said in the last five years a lot of angsty teenagers, people really haven't recovered emotionally from the COVID thing. Kids lost really basically a year of school. Um, a lot of the parents are still emotionally displaced from COVID. A lot of financial challenges. There's a lot of kids that are hungry still. A lot of poverty, systemic violence. And just the culture of the last year or two has been so polarized and 
you're noticing more and more people that are just getting angry or bitter or resentful or disgruntled and it's trickling down to the kids and trickling down to the parents where everyone is just kind of frustrated and just ready to snap uh, as a similar side note so what i do is something called critical incident response and back five years ago i'd get about one a month where there'd be a murder or a suicide or a shooting and then they would call me as a crisis counselor and I'd go down right afterwards and provide emergency counseling before I'd get about one a month. In the last year, I've been doing on average one a week. And like mm -hmm. the last one was a guy came down to a, a place and he got, he was fired for having alcoholism and then he shot up his girlfriend and he shot the place around his office. And while that was horrific, the really scary part of it is when I went down, I talked to some of the other people, and the other guy said, you know, if you hadn't come here today, I would have shot the place up too. So it's like mm. you really, really have to be aware that most people emotionally are just right at the edge of losing it. Or not, I don't know about most people, but like a certain population. And it feels like our culture is more fragile now than it's ever been, and people just need relatively few things to make them on the verge of snapping. And I'm happy I went down there because I talked them down. But yeah, it really makes me scared and sad to see how frequently certain parts of our culture are just in perpetual crisis. So then I talked to the manager afterwards and we created a plan to try to more aggressively screen for at-risk mental health issues and, you know, how to more inclusive drug testing policy and not just to punish them but to give them emotional support so that they can get counseling and that's the paradox is at work the people who have drug and alcohol or mental health issues are afraid to go for counseling because they're afraid that they'll get fired and there needs to be more of a conversation conversation of integrating affordable mental health services within the population and to address the stigma of mental health so that the people can get the help they need, the help that they need, before their acuity becomes so intense that they do things that are very catastrophic. Because with with coverage and mental health coverage, insurances and stuff, is there there's some plans that it maybe ha have a little bit. Most plans, from my experience, don't really offer offer much. Is that right? What well, and that's kind of the weird thing. It's a very much a three class system. So what I mean by that is if you're lower income, there's something called Medicaid, which is state insurance, which is free, infinite free mental health counseling. Hmm. And we're in network with Medicaid and Berks Counseling, or with Berks, Berks County. Um, but the Medicaid, you get free unlimited counseling. So they're covered. The problem with that population is they no-show a lot because it's free counseling. They don't see the value in it. So we'll set the appointment and they don't show up. And so we're losing an hour we can't bill the insurance and I can't hire therapists to cover it because they're not getting paid for people that don't show up. The middle tier of insurance coverage is probably 40 to 60% of the population which have either high deductibles, like $4,000, $6,000 deductibles, and high co-pays. So like they, and then we have this all the time and unfortunately way more of my job is centered around helping people out. but. Your blue collar or lower or whiter collar 
population traditionally has $4,000 co-pays and $80 per session. So the co-pay, I mean, $4,000 yearly deductibles and say $60 to $80 co-pays per session. So if you're, for example, a blue collar person making 50000 a year, you're not going to be able to afford $80 a week for your son or daughter's counseling. It's not a sustainable model. Now, the, so for those type of people, we try to offer payment plans, sliding scale, and that kind of thing. But the third tier is like your government workers, your, your white collar, and they have like $5 co-pays or $10 co-pays with $100 deductibles. So if you're fairly affluent, mental health is incredibly affordable. If you're very poor, it's free, but no one do- uses it or not very many people. But if you're in the middle class, you're kind of out of luck. Hmm. And this is the huge barrier we have is the insurance system is really aggressively stacked towards the ultra wealthy or the very poor. Right. It's just for a lot of people in the middle, there's just nothing for them it's that's hard. affordable. And it's revisited like every year when you have to reshop or re-up a plan or yeah. re. So you've created a sliding scale that that's something that like you've just decided to do or well, is there... As a director, I had a moral obligation to serve my clients, and I don't want finances to be a barrier to treatment. And I will do what I have to to make it work for most people. So, like, I have interns, so if they can't afford it, I'll let them see the intern for, like, really cheap. I also do some pro bono sessions which is like short-term free sessions. And, you know, I'll, I'll do what I have to to try to cover that population. But, yeah, and that's what I spent a lot of my time is trying to create affordable access to health care. But the government has been just absolutely horrible and not helping us in any way. They actually penalize us because I took one of my employees out of welfare and made her salaried, and I got no tax incentives whatsoever, and it actually cost me and her more money when she's on the government everything was free it penalizes people from working and it was very very difficult to get her from the welfare model to full-time salary w-2 employee and it's like again the government really should be trying to help people get from dependent to independent but there's nothing in place that i could find that that was helpful in any of those transitions have you ever had anybody, Is I don't even know if there's something in place or if it's legal or what, that just almost sets just a retainer for you, almost like a, a person who just believes in what you do and says, here's a retainer for people. I mean, is that... Well, and it's funny you say that. So one of our things that I'm connected with is a nonprofit. And one of the things, it's called a micro nonprofit. We don't depend on the government for any grants. And I could have gone to the churches, but I'm of this belief that what we do is self-sustaining. We don't need outside help. And because the problem is when you do ask for government grants and stuff, then they legislate everything and they push their political agenda. So we don't take government for the help or aid or grant for the nonprofit. For the business, again, while it would be nice to do a retainer, we're good enough at negotiating with the rates and with the insurance providers and I have a very good office manager so that we don't actually have to do that. I think the more, the better thing for us to do is just offer sliding scale in exchange for someone that's not fully licensed. So in our industry, you have a master's degree, which is minimum criteria, 
but after you get your master's degree, it's at least two years post-master's. You need 3,000 hours of additional supervision. So the, per the question I have is on the one end, how do the staff not starve from the point that their master's degree, but not yet licensed? And then how do I provide affordable counseling for people that have insurance, but don't you know, have the money for the copay? So how, how I help both of them is I will say, if you want to see an unlicensed person, you can, we'll give you a cheaper rate for it. Mm -hmm. But we're still roughly half the price of the going rate in this area. And I don't really care about money. Like, that's not a motivating force for me. I have enough to be comfortable. But it's like anything over what I need to pay my bills, I just give reduced rates to the clients. I pay the therapist more. And it's like the more you invest in making a sustainable work environment, the more it comes back to build growth and i should ask you is this a christian audience or a secular audience because i have a different response depending yeah. upon who's I listening mean, it's it, it's it'll be both i mean I, I imagine most a lot of people within the church will be listening to it okay so, so. given that permission yeah um basically i have a 90 10 theology meaning 90 percent of what i make i give to god and i live on the 10 percent and I know it sounds insane economically, but it works. Yeah. And the more I give to God and the more I give God the business, and I say, God, this is your business. If you want to make it grow, make it grow. If you don't want to make it grow, shut it down and do what you want. Since I took that attitude, the business grew 500%. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's not me doing it. It's God saying, look, you're following me, so I'm going to bless that. It's not my ability, it's not my strength, it's not my brilliant management style that's growing. It's God saying, you're trusting me, so I'm trusting you, and he's the one doing all this. You just want to yeah, be with him, invite him in, Yeah, I just, just go with his flow. I said, God, yeah. do what you want. You have this business. It's not my business, it's your business. It's a great posture to have. And it works. And I yeah. thought, you know, my wife's like, why are you giving all this money to the church? And I said, I give this money to the church because God gave me this first, and I return it. And she's like, you're giving too much money. I'm like, well, it's not my money. It's God's money. And yeah. God always outblesses me the more I give to him. And I don't look to God to get money. I appreciate it, but I look to God because it's biblically what I'm called to do. And when I model my life based upon God's will and in alignment with God's values, it always works out that much I'm sure of. Yeah. When would be um, a time for a, so a family if they want to maybe they're they're seeing behavior in their child and they don't know what to they don't know what to do they've taken away this they've tried adding this they're now it's just becoming like they feel a, the relationship is becoming broken. Um, what are what are some signs like what what would you what do you tell parents? Well, and that's a great question. Part of the problem is culture. So if the child is going to, and this is kind of what I want to talk about a little bit, if they're going to a secular public school and your child or your family is Christian or of faith, it's a hostile culture for them. There is so much negative influence on secular culture, especially the education system, that if you're a Christian parent and your child goes to a public school, you need to know some of the problems you're going to have to work through because it's a very hostile 
and it's very conflict laden because the education system is indoctrinating the children to make it that you as a parent are going to have problems. It's just built into the curriculum. And again, not to be specific, but generally speaking, they don't want children and parents to have intimate relations. They don't want them to be in communion. They don't want the parents to be actively involved in the children's education, in their sporting events, in the social things. They will allow it, but there's so much of an ideological, basically they're hostile towards Christians. And if you're a parent with a Christian values, trying to instill the Christian values in your children, which I believe is pretty much this audience in my own perspective, you have to understand that the longer they go to public schools, unless they have a good Christian support group at the school, they're being persecuted for their religious beliefs. Uh, they're being told that heterosexuality is wrong, that people can change their gender subjectively. And they're told all these things, which are directly in contradiction to biblical standards, biblical values, parental relationship building. So if your kids start acting reclusive, they start acting host hostile towards you, if they start saying things that don't make sense based upon what they've been indoctrinated in, you're going to have to really sit down and talk to your kids and say, look, you know, just because you hear something. And like, for example, my child goes to a public school and she's the only, she's 13, is she's in the class of 32, and she is only four of her, her and three other children are the only ones that identify as heterosexual and female. Mm. So in a class of 32, at least like 20 of them identify as non-binary, which is like, wow. Um, at least 12 to 15 of them say they are, and they have like 20 different words they use now, but like, not heterosexual, like either homosexual, and they use all these, you know, new yeah. words of blah, blah, blah. But like, she's the only traditional, and again, she's only 13, and they're putting all these words in her head and all this agenda, and all her friends are like trans or non binary. And I'm like, look, I believe as a Christian, we're called to love everyone, and we're not called to condemn people. But I also believe that if you're falsely indoctrinating my child and trying to force her to not accept her belief system, then that's, I have a problem with that. And she gets picked on a lot because she's heterosexual, female, and Christian. And that's considered wrong, the minority. That's considered, you yeah. know, bad in our culture. So for a parent who has, who has spoken uh, identity into a child, like this is who you are this is how you've been made um what's happening with the 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 culture the kids in school like is it's become kind of um cool to almost not know quite who you are or be all things or like what's going on yeah so that? there's a very strong pressure to not be heterosexual or not be your birth gender and you'll notice, again, with the letters, it first was L, then G, then B, then Q. It's basically, if they continue in the order that they're going, it's going to be everybody except heterosexual white men. So it's L, B, T, Q, plus, minus. Now they're pushing uh, pedophilia is the latest trend. And again, I'm not particularly political, but like... This they, is just in your field. Like you, you deal this with this. This is culture. Yeah, We're having people time. now that are called minor attractive people, and they say, hey... I identify as a person that's attracted to minors. Yeah. Well, and I know there's, there's, um, I don't know what it's called, but uh, when you're a, 
identity identified with an animal yeah bestiality oh furries you mean furries yeah there's people yeah in the high school now for reference they're putting litter boxes in the high school yeah and i'm like we're our culture is insane and they're going more and more insane but they keep expanding the letters basically so everybody but christian white males are in this new group and they keep adding it because they want more and more power so there's got to be um i mean so so the obviously the answer isn't um you know withdrawal from culture and withdrawal from everything and withdrawal withdrawal but i mean so a, a fam like how what can parents do yeah yeah well the solution is always simpler than you think it's all about relationship yeah. and there's two things you want to focus on is god is sovereign and god is in control and teach the children who god is through your life as a parent, you should be modeling a practical, tangible, sustainable faith. But what these kids don't have universally is relationship with anyone. We are more marginalized as a culture than we've ever been in the history of culture, despite the access to technology. But if you're a parent, spend time with your kids. Mm-hmm. Show them what a healthy relationship looks like because they're not doing it and they're thinking that the schools will do it for them or sports children need to have time with their parents and the constant variable is none of the or few of these kids have any workable relationship with their parents and that is a core need that we're seeing in the counseling field like most of the kids that come in here have broken relationships with their father or their mother and if you Take the time to listen to your kids and interact with them and you're, you know, kind to them and encouraging them. That will insulate them to a large degree against the peer pressure, against the temptation. Because the reason these kids go into these groups is because it gives them a sense of purpose, gives them a sense of identity, it gives them a sense of belonging. If you meet those needs as a parent, that temptation to be around those groups is much less. Yeah, I, I did. Um, I was talking in one of the episodes with somebody who um, did volunteer firefighting, mm. and and it's almost like these scenes, whether it's uh, EMS scene, first responders, or uh, somebody who goes uh, hangs out at the bar, or the American Legion, or whatever. There's that that group identity. Yeah. Um, Big that, fan, by the way, of all of those. Yeah. No, I am because it builds community. It's right. all about community. Yeah, it's like and or, mentoring is the other thing we need to do more of. If you want to help your kids, mentor them. Yeah, there's a local church called the Biker Church. Yeah, no, I love it. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and and that's the thing that there's great they're, fellowship. They're they're seeing each other. Yeah, deeply seeing each other and there for each other, and 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 that's that's something as a young as a young kid that they're just searching for. We're all searching for. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. The biggest thing you can do to help your kids is mentor them, model. And again, I'm conservative Christian, so my particular bias is teach young men how to do things that, you know, show them what character is, show them what integrity is, show them what honor is, show them your faith. Expect them to, you know, articulate their faith because a lot of these kids, they just spout out words, but they have no idea what the context of it is. There's no relationship, you know, with their peers or with the schools that validate who they are as a person. They're just kind of 
used for political gain for a particular political agenda, regardless of which side you're on. But the thing that's missing is if you mentor them, and like in our counseling agency, we have a three-year mentoring program that everyone that comes here starts as an intern. They sit in the sessions with me. I teach them everything I can teach them. They teach me quite a lot. And it's like it's through relationship, through time, that we understand who we are. And that's why we have a strong community. If you're a parent and your child is you're struggling to connect to your child, work, is, work more on listening to them. Set out certain times, like you can take them to you know, a fast food place. My daughter, for example, I have a teenage daughter, and she won't talk to me a lot. But if I take her you know, out for a Sunday and I drive an hour in the car, she'll chat with me the entire way there and back. And it's like I'll do you know, two to three times a night. It'll just be daddy-daughter time. And it's just and I have the same thing for my son. We, we take regular periods of time where we just sit and listen to each other and keep that relationship. Parents have this unique opportunity to reach into their child's life and the biggest mistake that the parents seem to be doing is not realizing how important they are to their kids. Hmm. I feel like as a parent, my wife and I, we have kids that are 8 and 10. And one, we like it goes fast. Um, but then you realize, you, you, you start to question yourself in like your method of parent like our method of parenting is are we doing enough are we not doing enough is this are we fighting the right battles are we not fighting the right battles and then sometimes the day turns or the days turn into like all we feel like we're doing is fighting these battles and we're missing the connection point and i'm just saying as a parent it's hard sometimes to see almost like the whole picture and if you take the time to ask that question you're probably doing a good job yeah, I, I remember, um, and, and my wife and I, our family, we've benefited a lot from um, counselings and therapy, and not not for the sake of like a triage thing, just as like pursuing health yeah. and learning how to communicate. And I remember um, someone said that the fact, so the fact that, that your kids have a, a home, that parents love them, is... <laughs> like yeah, it was no, like, absolutely. And the uh, other thing that parents miss is how you treat your spouse says volumes about their self-esteem. And one of the best things you can do as a parent is show love to your spouse in front of them. Mm. Because the children, they need modeling of a healthy relationship. And if you don't show it to them, they will assume incorrectly through social media and through news and through their peers what a healthy relationship looks like. So don't be afraid to hug and kiss your spouse in front of your children because the children need to see that modeling because that's how they're going to form their relationships. And that's an absolute critical thing is that you show your true feelings in front of your kids and you model it because they will. The problem isn't that the kids are not seeing the parents. The problem is that the kids are seeing the parents too well. And they will see it has a much stronger influence than you think it is. 
And the children will judge you based on both your words, but more importantly, they will judge you on your actions. So if you're nice to your wife or husband, kids will see that, and that's how they expect their dating relationships to be. If you yell at the kids, then they're going to think it's okay to yell, and we really make it way more complicated than it is. It's okay to be strict as a parent, as long as there's love there. It's okay to be permissive of a parent, as long as that there's some expectation of structure and honor. Kids are fine and they'll adapt to either. There's no right or wrong parenting style within the context of most parents are good enough parents, you know, but if you're more strict or your wife is more permissive, that's fine and the kids will adjust to it. But there has to be the context of relationship and love. Smaller the children are, the more structure they need. By the time they're 13 to 17, you want to begin to pull back on the structure and focus more on relationship. And the relationship is best done, like, again, one to two hours a week. Say, okay, we're going to do daddy-son, daddy-daughter night. Or I'm going to do, and I do date night with my wife. And we've been married, like, 20-plus years. And we still, you know, once a week we go out. And it's important that our kids understand that time with my wife is very important, as well as time with them. And it's not an either-or. It's a, you know, these are parts of, in our life what makes a sustainable relationship it's also important that you model with your kids the importance of church and spirituality and again i know this is morningstar big fan of your youth group i have many good memories and i was very very helpful i was very very encouraged by the help that you guys have given me over the years mm. and i went through celebrate recovery back in the day i'm a huge fan of that big believer in the integration of you know lay support and just basically emotional support groups and community and fellowship. It's not really like you do anything right away immediately to make people better. It's more like a slow, long, fun journey where you walk with people and you hear their story and you listen to them and encourage them. And counseling and church go very, very well together because it's like they partner to meet similar needs of people yeah uh, that's something when i encourage therapy or counseling it's there's not a one there's not a one session moment it is session after session month after month year after year where you realize there's these these steps of improvement where like you're transforming into a healthier person and it's um it's over a period of time it's it's yeah, and, all of life, really. Well, and it's funny. It's self-reflection, but it's also my best counseling sessions. I don't say anything. <laughs> and that's kind of the funniest thing is I listen. Because people, given the opportunity, if they believe, and the biggest thing about counselors that they need to do is develop rapport. If the people feel listened to, if they feel validated, if they feel like they matter, they will heal themselves. And yeah, you know, I can intervene if there's a crisis or different, you know, points. But 90% of my job is listening, encouraging, and the clients do, you know, most of the work. I just keep them so that they feel safe and they just kind of do their thing. So you're not actually telling them what to do. You're allowing... Yeah, that's horrible to... counseling. Right. Well, I've you heard this tell is a them. rule. But this is for... So for the church is, te is terrible at this. Well... That's not my well, no, conversation for, to have. Well, in general, the idea of, of your seeing somebody, listening to somebody, making them 
um, think differently about themselves? It's, is it like an emotional behavior type of... Well, people change through the ability to process their own feelings and thoughts, and most people don't ever get the time to self-reflect because they're busy paying their rent and busy yeah. doing life. But the church, you know, I have a master's degree from biblical seminary, so I'm very fond of Christian education, and I like the, what the church is doing, but I think the church has a right to challenge people to be the best and most moral and most spiritual version of themselves. It's not that if you want to go that direction, it's not the church's job to tell them, you know, what God, you know, condemns and don't condemns. I believe every Christian should read the Bible. And I believe in community, you know, the Christians should encourage each other and they should self-monitor and regulate, but it should be done out of the context of love and compassion and brotherhood yeah. or sisterhood. Yeah. And I think the church has been pretty successful at that. Yeah. I mean, I have a very good church experiences in the past, yeah. but the church, in my opinion, should be to inspire for community, for fellowship, to hold accountable. Mm. And I believe the church can and should hold people accountable if they profess to be a Christian. That's a fair request. Yeah. If I say I'm a Christian, which I am, I should be to the same level of spiritual accountability and moral accountability of any other Christian. Yeah. The rules aren't different for me. It's yeah. the same. Yeah. So when a person says, hey, you know, Jay, are you doing this? Is this an integrity issue? Are you accountable for what scripture says? The answer better be yes. And if it's not, then I need to examine my behavior. And it's absolutely fair to hold one accountable based upon Within, the beliefs. Uh, yeah. Non-Christians, I don't have that right because right. that's their yeah. own business. And I don't judge non-Christians. I think they have a tough road. But for the Christian with a Christian, I think there's a deeper level of communion, a deeper level of a community. Yeah, community yeah. And there's a deeper bond because the yeah. spirit that's in us is universal. Yeah. Yeah. So we're up against it on time here. But if 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 someone's listening to this and wants to take like another step, um, is it just, hey, Google... Uh, um, a, a local counselor? I yeah, mean, there, so the big thing I would tell other? you, yeah. and this is a great closing mark, remark, is counselors, we're told when we get our license, we're basically bound to the world, and we have supposed to push ideology. We're supposed to push the secular worldview. So if you want Christian counseling, ask the counselor if they are, one, Christians, and two, if they do Christian counselors. Because okay. most of the time they will say, yeah, we're good with Christian counseling, but ask them, you know, is it something you do because you're supposed to, or is that really your core belief? Yep. If they don't give you a good answer, go somewhere else. Yep. There are a lot of really, really good Christian counselors in this area, and you can Google it. I would say ask your local church people if yep. they have resources. The church has been very good at addressing that and like i said i'm very confident with Morningstar. i know yeah. you have a very good counseling connection yeah um, but yeah ask around ask good questions and just because they're in with your insurance does not do not assume that they are christian counselors because yeah. probably 90 percent of the counselors or 80 percent would say they're christian counseling but they're not faith-based evangelical christian counselors yeah and you can get whatever you wish but just ask them questions first Yep. And I'll say, M-Star, uh, feel free to call in the office if you want to get connected with somebody. We even have ministries like Grief Share 
that specialize in grief and also an aligned ministry, which is kind of first steps just into to mental health um, that we've had um, some leaders go and do training through. So awesome. Um, hey, thanks for doing this. I'd love to do this again. Yeah, today. no problem. If you want to do, like I said, in the future, theme-based, we can do potential yeah. like little mini themes. My, I, I am very curious about like the world that you and your profession live in. I mean, your day just revolves around these deep, 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 you painful. Have no idea. I don't have stuff. any idea. And most of us don't. And so I'm, I'm appreciative of this time. I love your heart and I love who you are. So thanks. Well, thanks for having me.